Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast here on the Panoply Network. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to a pro sports owner, which is not normally how we roll. But I have wanted to speak to this individual on the record for quite a few months. He is Baltimore Orioles front office chief, John Angelos. Why John Angelos? Well, for me, it was during the first days of the Baltimore protests following the police murder of Freddie Gray. The protests reached the gates of Camden Yards, where the Orioles and Red Sox were playing. John Angelos was asked to condemn the property damage and defend the fans who were at the game and felt their personal safety threatened by those outside. Instead, Angelos said this, My greater source of personal concern, outrage, and sympathy beyond this particular case is focused neither upon one night's property damage nor upon the acts, but is focused rather upon the past four-decade period during which an American political elite have shipped middle-class and working-class jobs away from Baltimore and cities and towns around the U.S. to third-world dictatorships like China and others, plunged tens of millions of good, hard-working Americans into economic devastation, and then followed that action around the nation by diminishing every American's civil rights protections in order to control an unfairly impoverished population living under an ever-declining standard of living and suffering at the butt end of an ever more militarized and aggressive surveillance state. The innocent working families of all backgrounds whose lives and dreams have been cut short by excessive violence, surveillance, and other abuses of the Bill of Rights by government pay the true price and ultimate price and one that far exceeds the importances of any kid's game played tonight or ever at Camden Yards. We need to keep in mind people are suffering and dying around the U.S. And while we are thankful no one was injured at Camden Yards, there is a far bigger picture for poor Americans in Baltimore and everywhere who don't have jobs and are losing economic, civil, and legal rights. And this makes inconvenience at a ball game irrelevant in light of the needless suffering government is inflicting upon ordinary Americans. Damn. Now we have we have him on the line right here, Baltimore Orioles front office chief John Angelos. First and foremost, I have to ask you: I mean, any regrets in making that kind of a statement? No, I I, I don't have any regrets about that statement, Dave. And I think it really wasn't about me; it was about the conditions of our community and how, at least in my view, a system can either look out for all of us or leave some of us behind. And to the extent that the system is leaving some of us behind, I think it's fair to question or to outright state that the system has failed not just those left behind, but has failed the totality of those within the group. So it would be hard for me to regret it because I think to do so would be to, again, let let down those who are suffering and are challenged and have not been taken very very good care of by the system as a whole. So when, when you made the statement, I can tell you that it connected with a lot of people because they said, yes, that's the truth. Declining standard of livings is merged with excessive surveillance and 
and things of that nature and excessive violence, as you put it, and abuses of the Bill of Rights, that these things walk side by side. And yet forget about pro sports owners for a second. You don't even hear politicians make those kind of connections, yet it looks demonstrably and objectively true. Why do you think more people aren't speaking out about this? Um, I think that's a result of a confluence of factors. I, I think you get, you, you, you witnessed here uh, probably from the late 60s, early 70s, a sort of march forward. And, you know, without politicizing it and talking about Republicans and Democrats, because you make a good point that when you look at the political process, it very, very much seems that no matter what side of the aisle you uh, those individuals are on, they seem to be reading very much from the same sheet music. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's because in a two-party system, you end up with two mass parties, and when you compound that by having the type of campaign contribution or campaign finance laws that we have in this country, which gives very wealthy groups and uh, corporate interests special access to politicians, whereas everyday people don't have that access. They have, you have one man, one vote here, but the disenfranchisement of the voting process by this particularly outrageous form of campaign finance in this country has really diluted the value of the vote. So politicians come through the front door and ask for every man's vote. But I I think there's a pretty realistic concern here that they're going into the back room in the next moment. And, uh, gathering up all the campaign contributions. And once that happens, have you not disarmed the entire representational democracy to the point where the politicians no longer represent the people? And does that then lead to this this relative indifference by the political process to the plight of the very people that the politicians are supposed to represent? Mm. I, I got to ask you, I mean, you speak about this four-decade period of industrialization, of shipping jobs both overseas and, of course, I'd also say to the anti-union regions of the south of the United States. And this period has also coincided, I'm sure you've heard this, like with politicians arguing that public funding of things like sports arenas can actually fill that gap of deindustrialization in the cities. Do you think that that's an argument that politicians should be making? Can that kind of sports infrastructure spending fill the gap that's been lost through deindustrialization? No, I do not think that's an argument that politicians should be making. I think it's it's largely an irresponsible way of thinking. Uh, I I would add, by the way, that not only do uh, sports facilities not fill that gap, but casinos gaming uh, entities, racinos, and all these types of things, mm-hmm. not, to, not to equate the two, because sports and gambling uh, as industries are, are very vastly different and should be kept that way, but they are both in the entertainment field, as are the other fields, music, live entertainment. Those are all industries that seek disposable income. They really only create jobs that are service jobs, and there's absolutely no way, notwithstanding the... Uh, the apparent desire by both parties to suggest so for many decades. There's no way that low-paying service jobs can create the kind of or sustain the kind of standard of living. You mentioned a moment ago the decline in the standard of living in this country. There's no way that those jobs can replace the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs. Yeah, I got to say, it is something when, I mean, we're talking about Baltimore all through this show, but you go to a city like Detroit, where I was recently, and you see 
these new stadiums, and you also see open casino gambling in the cities and in the hotels. And you go into those casinos, and you don't see high rollers. You see people who look like working-class families trying to gamble. And it has this feel of almost like picking the meat off the bones of somebody instead of something that's going to build a community up. Well, that's right. I mean, clearly the target audience for um, gambling is is a mass audience. And in many ways, the proliferation, you know, it used to be in this country that gambling was sequestered to certain places, primarily uh, racetracks. And sports gambling was very limited to Las Vegas. And there were not state lotteries. There were, in fact, the lottery was illegal. And for people to engage in those types of activities, it was either very difficult or it was completely prohibited. Now, fast forward four decades or so, if you take one, take your kids or or yourself uh, into a convenience store or a grocery store, a liquor store, what have you, you you see an outlet for gambling. And not only is it there, but it's actually run by the state in the various 50 states. Mm-hmm. Then add to that, you not only have uh, casinos on Native American Indian reservations, which was which un- unfolded in a variety for a variety of other reasons, but now you have the proliferation of gaming entities every seemingly seemingly everywhere. And now, of course, you've got um, the uh, internet ga- gaming in the form of uh, daily fantasy sports and things like that. So you've had a massive move forward in gaming, and absolutely the target audience is middle-class, working-class, and poor people, if for no other reason than that that's the greatest number of Americans, middle-class, working-class, and, and poor groups of people. So why, from a business standpoint, those entities are, are naturally going to target people. The social policy question is, is that something that we as a people stand behind, and is that something we want our governmental institutions to be essentially marketing, facilitating, licensing, and promoting. Yeah, I mean, that was my next question was, is difficult to not hear you talk about the need to de-link sports and gambling as separate institutions without thinking about FanDuel, DraftKings, the daily fantasy world, and how it is operating now as this bridge. And now it's, of course, under attack by the Attorney General in New York and other legal entities. Should pro sports get out of the daily fantasy business? Well, there's obviously some litigation that's just arisen in the last few days and, and that involves some of the sports leagues or some entities that were formed by the leagues, not just Major League Baseball, but the NBA and others, in which uh, apparently uh, leagues took equity positions or some sort of positions in these entities. So in deference to our partners, the other 29 teams in baseball, it's probably best if I don't make a specific comment about that, but... I think that all of society, whether that member of society owns a baseball team or owns a basketball team or that member of society buys a ticket to that, should be asking hard questions about the confluence or the nexus between sports brands um, or, or sports figures, um, but certainly the name on the front of the shirt, if you will, name on the front of the jersey, as well as the name on the back of the jersey. When those brands are being connected to gaming, I think it's fair for everyone to ask, Again, like the lottery machine in the supermarket or the convenience store, is that good social policy? Is that where we want society to be? Do you build up the brands of, of a sports team or a sports league? And then once you've built it up, do you associate those brands with all things? Or are there certain places where that brand should not be taken 
in deference to you know, young kids, uh, the potential for addiction to gaming, especially so in younger people who are more susceptible to impulsive behavior and such and so forth. I think those are all good questions to be a- asking, and I think the leagues and the teams and, and, and all the entities that have invested with some of those groups should be asking that, e- even if it turns out that the, the so-called fantasy gaming is legal, which it may or apparently may or may not be, even if um, it was being run properly, which maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, no matter how that plays out, I think the, it, without question, you still have the fundamental issue of are these appropriate, good faith, ethical, moral, societal societally positive brand association. And I, I don't think the leagues did due diligence before jumping in with these particular entities. Just straight up. I mean, and I think you're starting to see that in terms of some of the scandals that are leaking out. Uh, no, no need to comment on that, but I just, I don't see the due diligence that was done. Just seems like it happened very quickly. Yeah, I can't, I can't really speculate on that, but, but, but that's just some of the great, some of the some of the good work you do is, is I know you're going to be looking into it, and I think yeah. that I think I think that's a good thing that that you and your colleagues are looking into all all the things that touch that because gaming and gambling is a very serious thing, and and look, there's a reason why the racetrack is regu- heavily regulated and mm-hmm. the casino is heavily regulated. The reason that you heavily regulate gaming, but which is not, is in order to protect society from pitfalls. Um, exploitation, and you know that kind of ties back to where we started this conversation, which is one of the reasons that the quality of, arguably, the quality of life in the country's declined is, is what? Well, exporting six, seven, eight, nine million manufacturing jobs, and to your point or question, can you can you replace them with service industry jobs? You cannot. Um, I think you could get a group of economists together, more expert than I, and 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 I think that would be their conclusion. It has been. But both parties were in favor of that, exporting manufacturing jobs and, and saying you're going to replace it. We're going to become a service industry. If we could take it back to the Orioles organization real quick. just I, I for one, was so happy with some of the comments um, by first by Adam Jones um, speaking about – like star player Adam Jones for the Orioles who spoke about uh, directly to, to the youth of Baltimore saying that he, he sees them – and he he gets their pain, and he understands what they're going through. You know, at a time when a lot of the media was demonizing these young people, and then Buck Showalter, who said he was asked, "What would you say to the youth?" and he had a great answer where he said, "Look, I'm not a young black kid. I don't don't, don't ask me that question. You know, as if I have all the answers." And there, there was something profound and powerful when they stepped up and did that. I want to know first your reaction to their speaking out, and the second question is: What role can a team like the Orioles play societally when you have an, a situation like what was happening in Baltimore? Yeah, well, let me say first that you know Adam is a very thoughtful individual as well as a very thoughtful athlete, and he puts his actions uh, where his words are. He has always been very proactive in San Diego. Baltimore, very proactive with groups that he thinks make a difference, uh, whether it be the Boys and Girls Clubs. And he um, really has uh, stressed uh, in his life the need to work as an adult to help repair and um, give sustenance to institutions that work on the ground to help kids who are in distress. They need hugs. They need love. They need support. And 
You know, as much as I can, as much as I can give, as much as uh, I know people in opposition can give, it, I'm gonna try and give as much as I can because the city needs it. I feel the pain of these kids. I mean, they, let's, let's not forget I grew up in similar similar tracks as them, and I understand them. A lot of friends and family, you know, I, I see that it's it's just not easy seeing seeing a seeing a community that you you know you're you're trying to um, affect change in seeing these kind of things. But it's understandable because these kids are hurt, and these kids have seen the pain in their parents' eyes, the pains in their grandparents' eyes over decades. And you know, this is their this is their way of uh, of speaking on behalf of their parents and behalf of their grandparents, who the people have been hurt. Like I said, we need you know we need this game to be played, but we need the city to be healed first. You know, the city needs to. This that's that's what that's important to me is that uh, is that the city is healed. Because this is a this is an ongoing issue, and I just hope that uh, the, the 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 community of Baltimore stays strong, the children of Baltimore stay strong, and get some guidance and um, just uh, heed the message of of the city leaders. And Buck, um, although he I think his comments are very profound as well, and he's always also thoughtful. Um, he's he's probably being a little modest because his family um, and uh, has some connectivity to. Um, integrating schools and so forth, and, and, and we're on the right side of an issue that took a long time for the United States to figure out, but ultimately has. So I think he did, does have, some, have some, some personal insights into that, but he was being very, uh, I think, deferential and, and, you know, to the, to the pain that yeah. kids, and, kids in Baltimore are feeling and wanting to let them speak out. You know, you've never, you know, I've never been black, okay? So I don't know, you know, I can't put myself there. I've never been you know, face the challenges that they face, okay? So I understand the, uh, the emotion, but I don't, you know, I can't, I, it's a pet peeve of mine when somebody says, well, you know, I know what they're feeling. Why don't they do this? Why doesn't somebody do that? You have never been black, okay? So just slow down a little bit. At a time where reporters were kind of baiting him to be like the guy with all the answers. It was, it was a statement unto itself that I thought was very brave. Like basically talk to them, don't talk to me. Um, and then just one more question for you is the Orioles organization, Camden Yards, the team, do you see it? How can going forward, can it be like a force of cohesion in the city? Like the sort of thing that can be part of the healing of Baltimore, the growth of Baltimore, or are we asking too much of a sports team? I think teams can, sports teams can be and should be active in their community. I think a team can and should want to take on some of these issues. You know, I grew, I grew up in Baltimore, and Adam and Buck you know, grew up elsewhere. You know, one of the reasons I, you know, I wanted to let people speak, and, you know, you saw a lot of marches. Um, you saw some violence. It was very minimal. What you saw much more of were peaceful marches. I saw marches that were groups of kids from neighborhoods that have been moribund and in distress because they've been left behind. For decades, I saw those kids marching alongside of kids from Johns Hopkins and kids mm-hmm. from Maryland Institute College of Art and kids from Loyola College, all different races, ethnic backgrounds, and economic backgrounds. Presumably, some of the college kids are on scholarship, and some have parents who can pay the freight. So you had all these different groups. And here's the issue, I think. What do the kids do? The kids march from their schools, and they march down to City Hall. And they stood outside of City Hall, and they asked for change and relief and, and, and to be heard towards making that change. 
one of the things people don't know or think probably don't know, a lot of people don't know that listen to this about Baltimore City is Baltimore City is not within a county. It's its own entity. So it cannot look to the county for tax dollars to solve its problems. It has to go to the state legislature. And in a lot of ways, my, my reflection on those marches was they're great, but where they need to go next is down to Annapolis. And they need to say to the state legislature, don't forget about the kids in Baltimore City. And really, they need to go a little further south, down to the mall in Washington, D.C., and need to say to the Congress, don't forget about the Baltimores and the kids of Baltimore, you know, all around the country. You know, Baltimore is not a commentary, in my view, on urban plight. It's not a commentary on the plight of any one ethnic group or any one, any one racial group. Baltimore is no different from any other deindustrialized city or deindustrialized rural area. If you look at the Hudson River Valley, you just go up and down the Hudson River Valley. It's not urban. It's not particularly minority in its ethnic or racial makeup, but it has all the same unfortunate economic and societal ills that Baltimore experiences. And that's because of what? Deindustrialization closed factories. Now, one thing a sports team can do is, uh, I guess, speak up about that and say, just because we're in business doesn't mean it's not our business. And the other thing you can do is take, I think, stands that help. So sports team owners can do that and should do that. Wow. Last question for you, and thank you so much for your time. I'd just be crazy if I didn't ask you this, given everything that's happening in the country and in the world right now. Uh, The current climate, the hysteria around refugees, Syrian refugees not being allowed uh, to come into this country or, or the efforts to stop them from coming into this country as uh, a leader in Baltimore, as, as someone who has a voice, I, what is your take on the current political climate and how some of these political leaders are responding to it? I think it's um, unfortunate and irresponsible, and it's not leadership, to target groups of people based on their ethnic background or based on where they happen to have been born and to paint a red mark across hundreds of thousands or millions of people, men, women, and children, and in the process of stigmatizing them as a specific group of people, simultaneously stigmatizing an entire religious group, literally billions of people, is the worst kind of ethnic, religious, or race baiting and is not only uh, injurious to the United States' reputation around the world, but I I think ultimately those types of statements make Americans less safe, not more safe. And it is incredibly unfortunate to see elected leaders, whatever party, whatever particular philosophy they might have, have adopted or have internalized, you need to have a little more perspective than that. And unfortunately in the Middle East in particular, it's not just on this issue, I think U.S. politicians and and Americans would would do far better with a little more investigation of the history of the Middle East and the role the U.S. uh, and other Western countries have played there in manipulating governments, in militarizing country, in supporting um, unelected, non-democratic, and human rights-violating governments and the type of impact that's had on the masses of people there, and the type of antipathy. Not that that ever justifies unlawful behavior or terrorism, but there is a history there. 
And unfortunately, our politicians, not all, because there are good exceptions, good people who mean well, but as a group, the politicians here are far more interested in histrionics than they are in looking at the history and looking at the irresponsible role that the U.S. and other countries have played in the Middle East. You can't support the Shah of Iran and then complain later about the Ayatollah, the Khomeini revolution. You can't support Mubarak for 40 years and complain about Egypt, and you can't support unelected royal families who suppress, oppress, and violate the human rights of their own people and take the treasuries out of their own people, from away from their own people, and celebrate themselves. You can't align the U.S. foreign policy with those kinds of groups and then say later, you don't understand what's going on in the Middle East and it's all about terrorism. It's not just all about terrorism. It's about bad policy and uh, policy that's really inhumane on the part of the U.S. government. And if we don't start looking at that history and don't start self-examining, okay, then all we're going to be left with is a bunch of finger-pointing. And finger-pointing is not self-examination. It's just scapegoating. And that's what you're getting here with this these, these irresponsible stigmatizations of literally hundreds of thousands of Syrian people who are completely innocent and hundreds of millions of people who follow a particular religion who are also completely, completely innocent. So I completely disagree with that type of irresponsible behavior, and I think it's putting Americans at greater and greater risk and not less risk, and um, it's very unfortunate. John Angelos, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be with you anytime and um, look forward to talking some more soon. Thanks a lot, Dave, for having me. Yeah, I'll talk soon. Uh, that was John Angelos, folks, and he said a lot. That was John Angelos, the front office chief of the Baltimore Orioles, uh, pro sports owner, talking about uh, U.S. empire, about blowback, and about, with regards to Freddie Gray, the ways in which uh, poverty and lack of spending on education and infrastructure and an increase in surveillance and state violence actually lays the groundwork uh, for not only the more killings of people like Freddie Gray, but also more anger and protest in response. We now have another voice from Baltimore, uh, hip-hop artist Son of None, who is going to give his perspective on it through verse. What's your strongest memory from the protests, from the aftermath of the Freddie Gray killings? Uh, the resilience of people who are in the street fighting it, right? I was out there as a paramedic or as a street medic, I should say. Uh, and 
people get pepper sprayed and whatnot, and I would hit them with that 50-50, right? Like one part Maalox to one part water, that solution, and it would help. It's a, it's a, it's a basic solution, right? right? So it'll help uh, neutralize the acid, and everybody who I treated ended up going back out a few minutes later, mm-hmm. right? They didn't go home. They didn't give up. They went right back out, and I, th- I always thought that was pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I just from personal experience, it's like when I've been pepper sprayed, it actually makes me like angry, mm-hmm. like a boxer yeah. wanting to go back in for round two. Yeah, exactly. It just, but it, the other thing I have to say is that it was community led. It mm-hmm. was the people from Sandtown, Winchester that were leading it. Right. As opposed to uh, somebody from somewhere else coming in and bogarting the demonstration and, and using it for their own terms. Mm-hmm. Right. It was it, it was it was it was legit in terms of the demonstration, in terms of the fighting, in terms of all of that. And that gets to my next question because um, you know you always hear that about every time there's a demonstration that it's really outside agitators, that mm-hmm. it's not from the community. Of all the lies that you heard about when the news of Freddie Gray's death spread, and there was all this talk about there was going to be riots or whatnot, uh, what was the most outrageous lie to you? I mean, the most outrageous lie was that he did it to himself. Mm. Right. They tried to say that he threw himself around in the back of the police van and broke his neck. And that was a thing that people did. That's what they also said. That's like, oh, this happens all the time. People try to throw themselves. Again, around. it's a thing that they say. It's unbelievable. And they'll say anything. You I, know, like you can't you can't trust those people. Yo. You, can't, <laughs> you can't trust the police. I think if anything is clear now from all the videotapes, all the cell phone video, right, has proven time and again that. Cops will say one thing, but they'll do something else. Can you give us a sense post uh, that initial period about what the mood is in the city and where the movement is? I mean, in terms of where the mood is in the city, the trial's about to start right. on the 30th, right? That's going to be the first uh, trial date for the first officer. Um, in terms of what's been going on in the city, you had the Gray family. Um, they're supposed to be awarded $6.4 million. You have plenty of other families getting plenty of settlements, but they're not allowed to speak about it. Because yeah. Baltimore just has a, a, a crazy history of cops beating the crap out of people and then, you know, just uh, footing the taxpayer with the bill, right? But there's a bunch of other things that were going on before Freddie Gray happened, right? You had Tyrone West who was killed. You had Anthony Anderson. The West family, every single Wednesday for the past two years, has been out there demanding police accountability, demanding justice for their, their, their family member who was unarmed, dragged out of a car, beat to death sat upon by Morgan State cops and regular Baltimore City police, right? So they have a thing called West Wednesdays. That's one thing. We have leaders of a beautiful struggle. We have, uh, they do policy work. We have Baltimore Algebra Project. We have Baltimore Block. They do direct action stuff. We have Right to Housing Alliance, which, you know, is about to drop this rent court report that's going to blow people's minds away, right? Matt uh, Desmond at Harvard, he made this statement about eviction being to black women, what incarceration is to black men. And this study kind of validates that for Baltimore, right? That's going to be dropping in the next couple of weeks. You have, oh, Towson University, the students there, right? So the movement hasn't stopped. What the uprising did was plug more people into the organizations that were on the ground doing mm. the work. With that, I, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, the song is It's Like That. That's right. And take it away, please. You know why black people so mad? Cause most of y'all ain't, so I'm pretty uppity. I don't know a cracker born yet with the luxury to f- 
with me. Skymatic, static, the pragmatics. Only 1% is found my mathematics problematic. Huh. How many caps can they put in our backs? How many phones have to catch blacks killed by the batch? How many, how many cutbacks can they enact? How many bombs can they drop where civilians be at? Nah, this is Molotovs in a mask rap on American cans of tear gas tracks. And another non-profit won't stop it. Pimping poverty to make some grant money off it? Please, when the people got nothing to lose? Lead story 11 o'clock news and it's like that. What you heard, they protect killer cops cause they will get served and it's like that. I ain't taking it back cause it ain't where you're from, it's where you're at. Where's B-more at? Where's Brooklyn at? Where's Gaza? Where's Cleveland? Where's Ferguson at? And it's like that. Better get off the fence, demonstrate, legislate, build self-defense. That was Son of None. What do I say? We'll be back after this. <laughs> There's nothing to say. Right on. Son of None, how can people find out more about you? How can people find out more about your music? How can people follow you on social media? Please give us a breakdown. Yeah, social media on Twitter, it's at Son of None 7, um, Son of None dot 7, that's my IG. Um, Facebook, just go to Facebook.com slash Son of None, and I'm there. Awesome. Yeah. And Firebrand Records, too, right? Right, FirebrandRecords.com. Check that out. You'll find a lot of other artists from different genres who are doing incredible music and also living, you know, they're walking the talk. Yeah. Right? Like Absolutely. you had Rami Assam, who is this uh, cat from Egypt who was helping to lead the, the resistance, right, in, in Tahrir Square. He's actually in the square, that movie on Netflix that people can check out. And uh, he's also on the label doing music. So he's living it, right? And then he had to leave because he had been tortured right, and whatnot. So, so yeah. That, those, that's the kind of the caliber of the people that are on the... Uh, and and the Ryan area. Harvey, who co-founded it with Tom Morello, I know mm -hmm. he's going to be at the demonstrations in Baltimore November 30th mm -hmm. of Freddie Gray. So walking it and talking it. Exactly. Thanks so much. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you. Son of None really hit it about how the terror of the world is something that we feel in our own backyard. John Angelos as well, I think, really hit it about the ways in which global terror is something that people experience every day in our own backyard. And my last words are going to be about how that global war on terror hit home for me with the death in Mali of my neighbor, Anita Datar. So my neighbor Anita was killed last week, one of 27 to die at the hands of terrorists in Mali. Uh, her son, Rohan, goes to my kid's public school in Tacoma Park, Maryland. They're in the same grade. They're friends. Rohan is kind and generous, which makes sense because Anita was too. Uh, she devoted her labors and her life to making the world a more just place, particularly for women in the global south. You could learn about her NGO, Tula Lens, that she founded. I can't say that I knew her well, but after reading a description of her in a statement released by her brother, Sanjeev, she sounds both familiar and emblematic of the best of the community where I live. He wrote, Anita was one of the kindest and most generous people we know. She loved her family and her work tremendously. Everything she did in her life, she did to help others. As a mother, public health expert, daughter, sister, and friend. And while we're angry and saddened that she's been killed, we know that she would want to promote education and health care to prevent violence and poverty at home and abroad, not intolerance. I mean, that really says it all for me right there. And I believe that in Tacoma Park, we have people who want to stand with what Anita actually stood for. Because I also believe that what Tacoma Park is really is emblematic of what ISIS has called the gray zone 
you know, an area of coexistence of Muslims and the West. And I also believe that fundamentalists on both sides of the Atlantic are intent on destroying that kind of gray zone. They are intent on destroying a multiracial, multicultural, multi-theological space in a country that's becoming intoxicated by dreams of walls and barbed wire. In the coming weeks, we're going to see just how strong the fabric of this community actually is, whether we can stand together in the name of what Anita Datar actually believed and against those who are already using her memory to agitate for war and the kinds of institutions of intolerance she devoted her life to dismantling. But most pressing for us is that we have a child whose mother died under unthinkable circumstances. We have a class of second graders who are going to need help making sense of what actually happened. We have Muslim students who are going to need to feel safe and not stigmatize. We need to help all of these students carry a weight they didn't ask for, but which will now be a part of their reality. Now, the comedian Louis C.K., he has this bit where he talks about how parents in the United States have the luxury of picking a time to tell kids about war, when in other countries that decision is just made for you by daily reality. After explaining to my child what happened to Anita Datar, I think Louis has it a little bit wrong. Telling your kids about war is actually the easy part. Explaining to them why vengeance and more war is not the answer is tough, especially when we have politicians who think and speak like spiteful children. Humbly, I'd offer that the best way to make clear to our kids what the right way to approach this entire situation is, is to speak about the life of Anita Datar herself. If her brother could say, we know that she would want to promote education and health care to prevent violence and poverty at home and abroad, not intolerance, then the least we can do is pick up that torch. We can make sure our children know that the enemies of those values, both foreign and domestic, need to be challenged with an undying vigilance. Thank you so much for listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, on Twitter at Edge of Sports or email me at edgeofsports at slate.com. You can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, panoply.fm, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Please take care of yourself this Thanksgiving season. Please be safe. Please be well. It is getting crazy out there. And we'll be back, though, next week to talk to you about what's next at that intersection of sports and politics.